What do you think? Let's go to Psalm 50. See what God has for us this morning. We get a lot of words thrown at us all through the week, but isn't it wonderful to know that there is a book that we can open, that we know this is the Word of God, and that we can count on it, we can trust it. It's steadfast, helps us to be steadfast and faithful. We praise God for that. And I'm going to ask you if you would, uh, as we stand, let's stand together. Just so you know, this is a little lengthier than the, the other Psalms. If you can, if you're able, would you please stand? I want to read Psalm 50 to you so we can have this before us. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare the righteous, his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes, or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to the one who orders his way rightly. I will show the way, the salvation of God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So all of us, I believe, may enjoy watching courtroom dramas, at least if you look at the ratings, whenever you have a a courtroom drama, whether it's from uh, Perry Mason or Barnaby Jones or Quincy or, or Law and Order, all of the iterations of Law and Order there, you know that there are, and all the movies that come out, you know that when you begin to look at these types of, of courtroom dramas, there's really, um, There's a number of different ways to look at it. I was listening to an interview by Malcolm Gladwell, and some of you may know a bit about his his writings and such. Very, very compelling writer. And so Gladwell was on this interview, and he was talking about the different types of, his theory of the different types of courtroom shows and law shows that are out there. 
And one of them is talking about the Western. And we all know the Westerns. We grew up, a lot of us may have, with the Westerns. And even Star Wars can be considered, if you, if you think about it, a Western. And a Western is basically where there is no law and order structure and someone from the outside personally takes it upon himself to try to make everything right. You know, and then there's an Eastern where you have the law and order structures are there that are in place, but then there's a rogue cop. If you've seen the movie Serpico, you know, there's a rogue cop that's in the middle of that that's trying to disrupt everything. A Northern, a Northern is actually law and order where everything works out in the end, right. Everybody is morally righteous, whether it's the law portion or the order portion, the, the, the police part. Everybody is morally righteous. Everybody is doing the right thing. There's nothing that goes wrong. And I think that's one of the reasons why that show is so popular. It's so popular because everything turns out all right in the end. A Southern, and have you ever read John Grisham? So if you read John Grisham novels, so the, the issue there with the John Grisham things is the law and order structure is completely corrupt. And there's someone from the outside that comes in to try to, to reform all of these things. We, we're fascinated by these things. And I, I, mean, I would be very interested to know which one you all prefer. If you prefer the westerns or you prefer the easterns, northerns, or, or southerns. But there's something about it that is, that is compelling, whether justice is found, we, we find some satisfaction in that. And we want that to happen. Whether justice, if justice is not found, there's something about seeing how all of that transpires that helps us to understand a little bit about how humanity works. So they all serve their purposes. What we see here is this is one of the things that we see in this is that when we're going through the Psalms, we may not always know the background of why those Psalms were written. But what we're seeing here in this passage, what we're seeing here is that this is in a courtroom setting, right? It's in a courtroom setting, and God is bringing us before the bar, and he is about to let us know what's going on and what his expectation is. He's calling us to repentance, but repentance from what? As you're reading through this, you may have picked up on the fact is that God has high expectations when it comes to corporate worship. So you think about how we go about it. I, I, you, if you're new here, um, I used to be, well, again, a music minister. And it was one of those things where it's a little different now, but you, you, you run choirs and you have graded choir programs. And that's how I was trained. And it was kind of in a conservatory model where you had to learn Bach and Chopin and all of those things. Don't ask me to play that now. I have, I have other things to do besides sitting at a piano for two hours practicing Bach. Maybe it's just a rebellious stage that I have right now, but I, I, I just don't do that anymore. But I, what I do remember is when I was trying to plan worship, how, all the things that were going through my mind, because we were taught that there's traditional worship, which is usually hymn heavy, and there's contemporary worship, which is mostly hymns that have the copy or the songs have the copyright date with a two in the front. That's that's what we usually think of as contemporary, blended, a little bit of both, liturgical. So if you grew up in a Lutheran or a, you know Methodist or a Catholic background, then there was a, there was a set liturgy that you would have, boom, 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 all the way through. 
and on and on it goes. And so you're sitting there, you're planning a service, and there's lots of things that go through your mind. Boy, I wonder what deacon so-and-so is going to think about this one. I wonder what this person is going to think about this one. And so what you end up doing is you end up creating and carving out a worship service to where you get the least amount of static at the end of the service as possible. I would love to tell you it was different because you just get tired, right? Over time, you know, you go in with this idea, oh, we're going to do it the way God wants to do it. And then after a while and you start getting the feedback, then you start thinking, okay, this person doesn't like this, this person. And you start now all of a sudden, instead of looking here, you're looking here and you're looking here. And I wonder when you come into worship, what you do. Because what you're seeing here is a pivot, at the, at the first three verses, if you're reading through this, you're reading this and you're, you're like, as, as church-going people, as good, upstanding, fine church people, and you sometimes look at the world, you watch the news, and you see all the things that are going on, and you're looking out there, and what are you saying? You're, you're seeing here that while the world is really, really bad, the world is really, really terrible, boy, I hope go, God goes after them. But then there's a pivot in verse 4. The pivot in verse 4 is, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge who? Some of you said it. His people. His church. So you may remember at the very beginning, I read to you from 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. You may not remember it. It was so long ago. There's been a lot that's happened since then. But verse 17, therefore judgment begins where? So of all the places that God is going to come and judge first... It's not going to be Washington or Moscow or Tehran or any of the issues that are going on in Africa right now, all the corruption that's going on in Africa and Europe and everywhere else. He's not going to go to the, the, the politicians in Denver. He's not going to go to Hollywood. That's not going to be the first place that he goes when he begins to unload judgment and call people to account. He's going to call to account those who say, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in his word. I'm going to, I want to live for him. People that are naming the name of Jesus. And when he looks at, when you look at this, he's talking to two different people. The, in verses 7 to 15, we'll get to it. Verses 7 to 15, he's talking to those that have a, what's called a nominal orthodoxy. Derek Kidner used that term. A nominal orthodoxy. It means you're, you're orthodox or you're faithful in name only. Some people in politi- the, the political realm, they talk about rhinos. Not the animal, but republican in name only. Well, this is faithful in name only. Fino? I don't know. But Faith, but, but, but a formalism where they're coming in and they're doing all the right things and thinking God is satisfied with that. And what's happened is, is that all of the spirituality in you is sucked dry. Verses 16 to 23 is talking about the hypocrites, those that are saying the right things, but in their mind and their heart and their actions, they're so far from the things of God. And so the hypocrisy, and that word hypocrite is a theater term right? It's where you put a mask on. But a long time ago, you know, you would wear masks and that mask would be happy. You could make whatever ugly face you wanted to behind that mask, but what the audience would see is happy or sad or whatever. That's what a hypocrite is. We're putting on a mask in front of people thinking that we're hiding 
from them where our true heart is. I'll tell you what. If you read 1 Samuel, you'll see a verse in there that says that man looks upon the appearance. Where's God look? Can't fake him out. I used to have a friend. You can't deke him out. You can't, you can't fake him out. You cannot. There's nothing that you can do to where you come, whether it's the formalism of I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, or you coming in thinking, okay, I'm going to hide myself from everybody else. God, it's a, it, this is all about a heart issue. Where is your heart when it comes to worship? Where is your heart when it comes to approaching the things of God? When you're thinking about worship corporately, that's the word that we use for when we gather together, what are you thinking about and what are, what's your checklist, which we've talked about a million times, but what's your checklist? We may have not met your checklist, but I'm telling you this, we've got to make sure we're meeting his, because you know what your checklist, you know how you can tell whether your checklist is right with his, it's, it's right here. I can't tell you how many books, when I was, especially when I was a music minister, how many books I would buy about how to do worship right. And you know what can happen? You can read all of those books and forget about this book. So let's not forget about this book this morning. So what we're going to look at here is, the, is, is really three things, is that he issues a summons. And, and he issues a summons, he sees our souls. And he shows us salvation. So let's get to work on this first one where it, it talks about how he is summoning the earth. I, on Wednesday night, and I don't know, it, Sandy, are you here? There you are. I'm going to embarrass you just for a little bit, but it, it, it's good embarrassment. This is good. I, I only speak ill of me. I speak great of everybody else. I got plenty of work. To, I got plenty of material to the, the bang on myself. But when it comes to this, when, we, when Sandy closed in prayer on Wednesday night, on our Wednesday night, our 3D Wednesdays, she closed in prayer and she started listing at the beginning. She didn't go right into request. She started talking about the names and the attributes of God. Lord, you're holy. You're mighty. I don't remember the, all of them. I just, the impression, you're holy, you're mighty, you're good, you're faithful, you're majestic. You think that gets you into prayer time well, being reminded of the one that you're praying to? Of course it does, and that's what this psalm is doing. And so you have here three different names that are being used of God. Mighty God, L, E-L, not the letter L, E-L, mighty God. So he's mighty. He's almighty. You see there, the mighty one, God, Elohim, which is talking about he's the God of gods. There's, there's, now, there's no other God. The Bible makes it clear there's no other God. But there's other people that believe there are other gods that are out there, whether it's a religious God or a God of ideals. Idols can come in all sorts of fashion. And so we're seeing here, he is the God of gods. There's no other God like him, fueled by his holiness. But then there's the Lord. And you may notice in your Bible that it's all capitalized, which is Yahweh. So the, the King James may say the word Jehovah. That's the I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And we you know what that's talking about? That he's all sufficient. Because part of the problem of when they were coming to worship was they were thinking that their worship helped complete God. God needs our worship as if there's some deficiency in him. But what this says right at the very beginning is he's all sufficient. He, he's not deficient at all. 
And it's just interesting how we tend to think, well, God, God, you need me to know. Worship is not about us. Worship is about God, and it's for us. It's bringing us back into play, reminding us of our full reliance upon him. We could not take a breath unless he ordained it. There's not one, our blood could not move in our veins one millimeter unless he allowed it to be so. He is sovereign over all things. What a way to start a psalm. And he's speaking and he's summoning the earth. And I love how it's like from the rising of the sun to the setting. So that's east to west. And then later on he talks about... Uh, I believe we have it in verse 4. There it is. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth so far and wide and up and down. He is summoning the earth to come to him. And that's where we have to really understand who he is. He talks about out of Zion, his city, the perfection of beauty. God shines forth. Our God Pardon me, our God comes and he does not keep silent. And I think that's important for us to understand because we may have been living our life for so long and and you may hear preachers like me up here saying, you know, God has this way of going, but if you're going this way, you need to get over here. And you may be saying, well, I wish God would tell me something because you're not, you don't think you're hearing directly from him. You think he's been silent. He is not silent. He is speaking in a thousand different ways that, he, that only by the Holy Spirit will you have ears to be able to hear. That's why he prays that overall. Give him ears to hear the Father. Give him ears to hear. Give him eyes to see. Give him a heart that's transformed to be able to get into your word. Well, I haven't heard him. But if I heard him, I'd listen. You are hearing him. And, and there have been times when God has spoken and we, in the scriptures and, he, and people still say no. There was even a time when people saw Jesus rise from the dead and they saw him standing right before him. And it says that many worshipped him, but some doubted. It's a heart issue. Even if God were to show up right here, if your heart is wrong and your heart is off, you would still deny it. You would come up with some other explanation. It, it, it starts with the heart. And before him is a devouring fire. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful in receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He's not Santa Claus. He's not the Easter Bunny. He's not one of those fluffy fellows that, oh, he's a consuming fire. You must understand that piece of him when it comes to going before him. But the pivot, again in verse 4, the pivot he calls to judge his people. Verse 4, his people. Verse 5, you see him talking about the faithful ones. Verse 7, my people. Verse 7, O Israel. That's, that's the people of God. And again, that's why I read from 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment is not going to begin anywhere else but here. Not 780 East Arapaho Road, but amongst us as God's people that are all over the earth. We're going to have to give more of an account than anyone else. So when he summons us to his bar, what would we be able to say? Well, he's about to let us know the issues that he has. And as we go into this next portion, looking at the fact that he sees our souls. 
He sees our souls. He sees our hearts. He sees our minds. He knows what we're going to do even before we do it. We, this, this is who he is. And he is not one to be trifled with. He is a loving God. Please understand. But, you know, sometimes people, and I was listening to the sermon this morning, and some people, they have a problem with God being angry. They don't have a problem with him being loving, but they have a problem with him being angry. But I'll tell you this, and I'll, I'll, I'll contextualize to my issue. If I, ha- if I know someone that's a friend of mine or they're a relative of mine, and I love them dearly, but I see them destroying themselves with their lifestyle. Think about times when in your life, when you have someone that you love dearly, dearly, and you see them making wrong decisions, destroying themselves with their lifestyle. Your love, it's because you love them that anger may arise in you. Why are they doing that? Don't they see? Why can't they? Ch- you know, and you just, you feel that. So that anger, see the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. I don't care. Let, let them ruin themselves. But if we love them, then there's something that's going to arise in them that's like, why are they doing that to themselves? Please, can't you just stop this anger? And this is what is happening here. So it's like, God, why would God bring his people before the bar of God? It's because he loves you. And he wants, he wants to set you right. And so he brings this in order for you to be repentant so that fellowship can be restored. So what do we see here? Well, you'll hear, hear my people, verse 7, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God. Now, if you're reading along with me, is that the end of the sentence? No. I am God, your God. There's a relationship that is there, that has taken place. Now, if you read through here, um, 8 to 13. He does not have a problem. In fact, he's like, I'm glad that you are making these sacrifices. You're going and you're doing it right. I'm glad you're making these sacrifices. I'm glad that the burnt offerings are for me. If you're talking to us right now, I'm glad you're coming to church. I'm glad you're coming to Sunday school. I'm glad you're rolling up your sleeves and using your gifts for God's purpose. But please understand, verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or, or goats from your folds. Please understand what he's saying here is, he's like, I don't, need you, what, I don't need that to make up for any deficiency in me. He would be telling us right now, I don't need your money to make up for a deficiency in me. I'm not broke. I own For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. I know all the birds of the hills. He knows when every sparrow falls, Jesus says. And all that moves in the field is mine. I I, I have it all. So if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you because it's mine anyway. And if I were one who ate, I would eat. I don't need any of that. So he's saying in verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Where does thanksgiving come from? Your heart. He's saying keep doing the other stuff. Keep bringing those things as I have ordained. And now keep bringing the offerings. Keep bringing your gifts. Keep bringing those things. But what is he saying? He is saying here, but do it from a heart of thanksgiving. 
Do it from a heart that, that seeks to glorify me and to love others. That's what he's saying. Call on me in the day of trouble. I am, only, I am so sufficient that not only do I not need anything, I can help you when you need something. That's how sufficient he is. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In Acts 17, when Paul is at the Areopagus, in verses 24 and 25, he's, he's saying, I don't need to be served with hands. I don't need to be served like that. I already have it all. So this is something that we see over and over in Scripture, that th- this is nothing new. We have to be careful. Before we move on to this last portion, let me share with you something John Piper wrote. He said, simply put, God does not need you or me. He is altogether self-sufficient, dependent on no one. He is, in fact, the one who is responsible for the existence and preservation of all life, yours and mine. Therefore, he cannot be served as if, some, as if he were needy or exhausted or weak or lacking something that only you and I and the people of your church can supply. To arrive on a Sunday morning and declare to God, we are here for you, in the sense that you believe there is something you can give to God that he doesn't already have, or that you can shore up a weakness or fill a gap or overcome a deficiency, is an insult to God to the very core of his being. And there's a lot of well-meaning preachers that say that. There's a lot of well-meaning songs that, that are sung like that. And we've got to be very, very careful about every word that we bring in worship to him. There is nothing that we can do to make him more or make him better. And so we get to this. He's like, okay, he's going to show us our salvation because the formalism can dip down into what we're getting ready to talk about. And that's hypocrisy. So you look at verse 16, but to the wicked, God says. Now, these are people that are coming to church. I'm sorry, the temple, right? But they're coming before God in worship. But he's calling them wicked. Why? Because they are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And they may be doing the right things with no desire to allow the worship that happens when they come before God to change them from Monday through Saturday. We can fake it two hours, but how do we treat people? How do we worship? How do we act? How, what do we think about Monday through Saturday? Or even Sunday noon to Sunday 9? What do we think about? And so he's saying, but to the wicked, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? They're singing the songs, and the songs are saying the right things, and they're saying amen at the right spots when the synagogue preacher is up there preaching. But what's he saying here? You hate discipline. You're speaking the words of God, but the words that God speaks back to you that is to be applied to an area of your life that need, you need to repent from, what do you say? You hate it. Why? I've already got it figured out. God, thanks. And you cast my words behind you. You can be casting his words behind you even as you say you affirm these words in the assembly. No wonder judgment begins at the house of God. No wonder. And no wonder our witness is tarnished when people may see us during the week acting as everybody else is, but they see us saying and doing the right things in worship. No wonder. Some of you, you may be here, and that's why you're not wanting to follow Jesus at all, because you've seen how Christians act, or people who profess to be Christians. I don't blame you. And that's one of the things that God is going to come 
and hold us to an account. If you see a thief, you're pleased, and if you keep with a company with adul- and you keep a company with adulterers, so that's talking about the seventh and eighth commandment: Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's eight and seven. You give your mouth free reign for evil. You say whatever's on your mind. I, I mean, there have been people who have named the name of Christ who believed that there was, it was their constitutional right to say everything that was on their mind, to unload. Now, they say it, they get it off their chest, they feel fine. Oh, boy, I'm glad I got that off my chest. But do you know what kind of buckshot you just left to everybody else? You could, be, you could feel great getting it off your chest, but you could also be just wasting everybody that is in your vapor trail. And that's not the way of the Lord. You know, when everywhere Jesus went, people that were seeking him, better. People that didn't care to seek him probably felt worse. But he was always consistent in his way, and he helps us to be consistent as well. You spit, sit and speak. You sit and speak. It's not as easy as you would think. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So not only are you slandering people in general, you're slandering your own family. Boy, that really helps family reunions come along, don't they? That's why some people don't want to go to them because there has been this systematic approach of saying something to make you look better, make, make somebody else look worse. And it could be truth, it could be falsehood, but the effect can still be the same. These things you have done, verse 21, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Real quick here. So Barna every so often does, Barna Pew Research, every so often they do polls and they ask people that identify as evangelical, which is really a, a very low bar of how people are identified as evangelical. But they ask, one of the questions they ask is, did Jesus ever sin? Now, the answer is, what? No, no. right. Oh, good. Wow, good. But, but the answer is no, Jesus never sinned. If he sinned, then he would need a Savior, and then him dying on the cross would have been just ridiculous, right? So, but, but over 50% say he did in these things. Now, we're shocked until we start thinking about, well, if Jesus was human, that's what it means to be human is to be frail and weak and not get it all right. But he's also God. And so that's where we got to make sure we're tight about who Jesus is and have, have that understanding. But it's still this thing of, well, Jesus is just like us, right? He's not. He's not just like us. He is a human being that stood to obey the law on our behalf. But he's also a holy God who made the law and knows and was able to obey the law that he gave. So that's why he was a completely worthy substitute for us on the cross. And so we look here and we continue on as as we get to verse 21. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then. Now that is an emphatic. Mark this then. You who forget God. Wait a minute. Aren't these people that are worshiping? Aren't these people that are coming to the temple and offering the sacrifices and hearing the, the rabbi get up and go on and on and on and on and on and on about something in the word? How can you forget God when you're doing all these things that God's prescribed? My answer is easy. 
Because you can go through the motions with the formal. And you can be a hypocrite with your mask. But how do you deal with things? Here's the, here's the test. Here's the test. How do you deal with things that don't go your way? You're going to be in, we're in a broken world. Things are not going to go your way. How do you deal with that? Okay? And how do you deal with worship that doesn't go your way? Well, it's not about your way. It's about his way. He's prescribed things. And if we allow, those, allow our own personal preferences to undercut what he's called us to do, then we really are setting ourselves up saying, I'm God, and you better, you better bow to me. So when things don't go your way and the way that you react can be a tell as far as what your idols are. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. He's he's not our only hope, he's our last hope. Growing up, I loved Reagan and he always said that America was the last great hope on earth. No, it's not. There's still hope even if America goes down. You know where that hope is? It's in Christ. Christ is the only hope and he's our last hope. He's our refuge, our strength, and ever-present help in time of trouble. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me, coming from the heart. Are you thankful for what God has done for you in Christ? Are you? Do you realize where you were? dead in your sin and your trespasses and God comes along and makes you alive takes you out of the devil's clutches takes you out of the world's clutches takes you out of your own self clutches and he's brought you to himself the covenant that he made was always a covenant of death so that we might have life and when we look at this, the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Well, what happens is, is that we're not going to always be able to order our way rightly. We can't do that of our own strength, but there's one who comes along and helps us. But now I rebuke you, verse 21, and lay the charge before you. Romans 8 talks about who shall lay a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. So when we trust in him, It's not about us working our way and getting ourselves right and saying, okay, God. It's about a heart being changed to praise and thanksgiving and humility and intentionality and teachability, saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm all in because of what Christ did on my behalf. It's not about what I do. It's about what he has done on our behalf. You think that if that, if that penny dropped in you when it comes to really leaning in on what Christ did, you think that will affect your worship? Do you think if you take it for granted and don't revisit it often, but you take it for granted, do you think that will affect your worship? Of course it will. Adversely. But if we are preaching the gospel to ourselves and being reminded this is what Jesus did, then the formality, yeah, there may be some structure that's there, but fueling that formality is holiness and thanksgiving and praise to all that he has done. And the hypocrisy, well, then you're going to have to, what's going to happen is once you are thankful for the sin that Jesus forgave in you, then all of a sudden that sinfulness is going to be confessed, is going to be repented of, is going to come out in open air, painful in the beginning, but glorious as a result, because now you're free to follow, you're free to worship with no hindrances at all, 
laying before him, approaching him rightly. Because worship is not just corporate. It's daily, hourly, minute by minute. So where are we this morning? God is, is summoning the earth, yes. He's exposing our hypocrisy, but he, he has spent the lion's share of the time in this psalm saying judgment begins with you all, with judgment begins at the house of God. How are we approaching him? How are we approaching worship? The one who offers thanksgiving as sacrifice glorifies me. Live a life with an attitude of gratitude for all that Christ has done on your behalf. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Boy, what a present that is to be shown how to be right with him based on everything that he has done for us. So, Father, I pray you would help us. Help us to understand, Lord, more and more about who you are and, and what you've done. That when we come into our times of worship, that we wouldn't sit there thinking about what, what we're not getting and what we're not hearing and what we're not this and what we're not that. Lord, we are all under construction. We're all works in progress. But Lord, we want to make sure that your word is lifted up, that Christ is exalted that our songs praise you well, that we give of the gifts that you have given to us, that we serve you well, and that every day we would come before you with praise and thanksgiving, confession of sin, and that attitude, Lord, of being grateful for everything that you have accomplished for us. There may be some here who maybe need to repent of just coming and going through the motions. There's nothing, there's no spirituality there. It's just, well, this is what I'm supposed to do, and then I'm going to get on to the next thing. And there's no depth of worship. There may need to be some repentance there. Father, there may be some people here that are putting on a great act and fooling us really, really well. But they're not fooling you. And that's really all that matters is what you have to say about it. And there may need to be some people that are repenting from their hypocrisy. Remove that pride, instill a humility to have them not worry about what anybody else thinks except what you think through your Son by the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. If there's any here that need to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior and get started well and get started right in their walk with you, may this be the morning. Use us, Father. Do your work. Do your work. We pray your Holy Spirit would come and convict us where we need to be convict us, convicted and comfort us where we need to be comforted and counsel us where we need to be counseled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're getting ready to sing. Singing is a way for us to give voice and to return back with our words and these words what, from what we have heard and the words you've heard from Scripture. We're getting ready to sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. No other, be- no other place to be. No better place to be than to remember all that He has accomplished for us. Not because of what we've done, but in spite of what we've done and because of His glory and His goodness. Let's stand together and sing and be convicted. Mm-hmm.